Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And it's a warm welcome on a quite chilly day to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. The first part of an online forum titled The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation, featuring three Palestinian activists, one in Canada, one in the West Bank and the third in Melbourne. Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association talking about that area of the world. Dr Tim Anderson on the question of a new Cold War. Lee Tan and the conviction of the former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib over the 1MDB scandal. And shifting political dynamics in Timor and the collapse of the energy pricing. But who else but Mr Kevin Healy? A weak journalist, when big economic guru Josh Ryder Iceberg said he was inspired by former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Maggie Thatcher, and former US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo Ronnie Reagan. Now, we knew Josh was excruciatingly boring, but we didn't know he was that boring. Maggie deliberately and consciously made the filthy rich filthy richer sensible, no great economic reforms like slashing their tax rate from a crippling 83% to a more manageable 25%. For a start, surely their tax lawyers and the big four financial behemoths couldn't charge the same rate for advising them how not to pay 25% as they charged for advising them how not to pay 83%. And most critical of all, she disempowered, indeed, excoriated unions and workers who were so ripping off their caring employers like the poor coal corporations. While in his defence, it's possible Ronnie had no idea what he was doing. Not that it mattered, the result was the same, although he only slashed the tax rate they don't pay from 70 to 28%. They were able to budget for these little benefits for the filthy rich, no, my bias is showing benefits for the whole community, by slashing services for the undeserving poor, like Maggie smashing public housing because she knew everyone deserved to own their own home like she owned her own home, and we bet the undeserving poor thrown onto the streets wished they did. Interestingly, the Ronnie Reagan Foundation, or whatever it's called, which is some sort of Ronnie Museum, only the most giant of minds would want to commemorate Ronnie anyway, has forced current US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor to withdraw references to the Ronnie Foundation in his election fundraising, which says heaps about Donald. Still on heaps, given two dedicated socialists, and it's not often the caring business class, heaps praise on and calls for today's politicians to adopt their policies, 
dedicated socialist, former big supremo nuclear hawk himself, and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, introduced Maggie Ronnie-nomics to True Blue Aussie with great enthusiasm, including its overriding necessity to smash the evil unions. We hope Josh has thought through the implications of aligning himself with two such rabid socialists who devoted their lives to working people, like company directors, shareholders, big supremos and big economic gurus. A woman made the news by asserting aggressively that as a living woman, she had the human right not to wear a mask, and unfortunately, she didn't elaborate on what her human rights were as a dead woman, which her idiotic defence of her human living woman rights could make her at any time. By Tuesday, the government sent the trained killers into aged care facilities, presumably to put down mercifully the most critically ill. It's more humane to put them down painlessly with a bullet to the head than the treatment they've been getting, the pejorative Dan said, also giving the trained killers the chance to enjoy the fun, fun, fun of what they signed up for, or grammatically for which they, but, but never mind. Interesting, the problems are occurring in businesses run by the super-efficient private sector and thus far not in aged care facilities run by the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector. Can't work it out. Not that that stopped the usual suspects blaming the state government, which just, just doesn't happen to be responsible for aged care facilities, but hell, don't let that minor fact excuse it. So apparently the inefficient bloated hand is responsible after all. While one super-efficient private nursing home is so efficient and sincerely compassionate, it contacted one family three days after their parent had died to express their sorrow, their mea culpa, I hear. And not quite. They hit them with an invoice for next month's care, showing they've studied the bottom-line secrets of our esteemed banks and financial institutions like AMP on the customers, and they have every right to sue the next of kin, the loved ones, if they refuse to pay up. After all, we can't expect the nursing home to carry the losses of that empty bed. Thankfully, there was good news amid the deaths, illness and mourning. Estia Health, one of the super-efficient, so super-efficient, the regulator was forced to take over two of its centres, despite or because of that, saw its share price rise, improving the health of the shareholders' wealth, the only health that matters. On those whose health doesn't matter, the expendable industrial cannon fodder, another mantra of the Maggie Ronnie-nomics that have so elevated the undeserving from poverty to extreme poverty, like contracting out government services we have so extolled for its role in quarantine hotels, for example, casual work, the gig economy, suppressed wage rates, Forcing workers to go to work because it's that or starve is also working a treat in this COVID world. Any wonder Josh admires all that success. Thankfully, the big super-efficient nursing home entrepreneurs by week expressed their concern for those ingrate workers by telling the government the inefficient bloated hand should increase its commitment to meeting their wages bill and provision of the protective equipment those Works need to keep risking their lives every time they turn up for work. The caring employers didn't state that last bit. They stopped at the hand us the first bit, but the, the approach in itself shows they care, led by one of the biggest super-efficient providers, Shane, more on my profits, scion of Doug, more on my profits, 
poos that Shane's entrepreneurial success and wealth are down to the fact his mum and dad slept together one night, Daddy-O kicking off Shane's empire back in the 50s. It's so community-minded, isn't it, the private sector offering the public sector a role. Still on COVID, in the what-can-we-say department, as Donald asked why his popularity rating was so low over his response to COVID and couldn't comprehend why the leading medical expert was so popular. What can we say? Although comprehend, Donald? Still, he's found the logical solution to that unpopularity. Call off the election. On his opponent, headline last week in the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Financial Times, Capitalist Times, the deceptive radicalism of Joe Biden. And I thought, yeah, yeah, so deceptive, we've missed it completely. Over in the US of our Minister for Offence and Trained Killing, Linda rendered to Uncle Sam Olds, Uncle Sam Olds and Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's Payne in the turned up for our annual grovelling festival, discussing a bit of train killing with their US of counterparts who know world peace hinges on crushing evil China. Well, the bad guys generally. The US of concerned that evil and bliss of China considered it has a right to access the waters of its coast when the US of and true blue Aussie know those waters are US of territory with the US of insisting China abide by the law of the sea which decrees all waters are US of territory. Uh, yes, we asked US of Secretary for US of World State Mike Pompeo or else why do you, the mud others observe the law of the sea, Mike, but you refuse to sign it yourself? Because, Mike stabbed gently, we are the law of the sea. And a great job they're doing too. Wherever evil nations assert some right to the waters off their coast, like evil Iran, which insists on using the straits of her moose just because it happens to be on its border, threatening the peaceful US of tranquiller fleets protecting the law of the sea. The U.S. of can't be blamed if countries all over the world insist on existing on U.S. of territory. Now, in fairness to Linda and Maurice, they told the U.S. of um, True Blue Aussie would make its own decisions on these matters. We will make our own decision to follow your orders, they expressed True Blue Aussie's independence, and as they will return to two weeks of hibernation, giving them almost enough time to scrub the remnants of the US of counterparts' boots off their tongues, the Socialist Party offered its alternative to the caring business class offence and train-killing policy, what some long-haired commie greenie wooden worker in an iron lots might call obsequious acolytes, displaying their long-haired commie bias. We agree, evil China must refrain from assuming it has rights in the South China Sea, which is so clearly US of territory, the territory of our very, very, very close friend, spokesperson Richard Malls, the workers, couldn't control his radicalism. Finally, therefore, why does it remind us of a little kid in the schoolyard trying to take sides between the two big school bullies competing for supremacy? Good afternoon. 3CR The Sewer Show Squatters and unwaged airwaves 
presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. What is behind the increasingly shrill attacks on China and how far can the US go with Australia hanging on to her coattails before it realises it has gone too far and there is no way back? Some point to a new Cold War, the first being with the Soviet Union following the ending of World War II. One commentator wrote that the Cold War policy against China is every bit as hostile as the US stance against the Soviet Union at the height of a showdown, with Secretary of State Pompeo's recent speech calling for ending engagement with China, rolling back its fledging empire and rallying Chinese people to overthrow their regime. I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson about the concept of a new Cold War and asked him if he agreed or not. Well, it is in a way, but has some quite different characteristics. What's going on now between with the US and China and Russia is significantly different to what happened with the Soviet Union and the US in, from the 50s through to the 80s. And I, I agree, actually, that it is a new type of Cold War, but uh, I think um, there's some quite different features to it. And what are they? The most important thing, and I think we only really understand this by getting a handle on the big picture, is that the role of the US in the world has changed a lot. Now, the role of the US in the world was on the rise in the 50s and 60s. And now, economically, the US has been in decline for well over three decades. And there's some significant international powers that are challenging its influence in the world. Hence, we've got these wars of the 21st century, for example, particularly in the Middle East, but also in Latin America, where the US is struggling to hang on to its influence there. So it has an enormous jealousy about the the rise of China in particular, and to an extent, the the resurgence of of Russia. And so it's playing a, what can you say, it's like an aggressive defensive role to try and hang on to its privileges because it's lost, you know, the center of industrial production moved to East Asia quite a long time ago, and now the technological leadership of the U.S. has slipped also. So while the U.S. is still holding on to its its military position in many parts of the world and the financial, the financial control that it has over international transactions, it's at the point of losing those sorts of things. And China is the greatest threat to that, I suppose, and that's why we've seen a reaction from all parties in the U.S. basically to this new push um, anti-China. But aren't they, in a sense, like Australia, shooting themselves in the foot because there's such strong ties, particularly with trade, with China? Certainly, in the case of Australia, there's an enormous tension there, a growing tension there. I don't think the role of the US is, is the same, really. Australia does have different interests. So if we first deal with the US... It fears being displaced by China in many respects, and you know, with reason, basically. For example, the whole conflict around Huawei and um, 5G technology is really an important but also symbolic way in which China is going to move into the technological league against the US. I mean, just recently, Huawei has become um, the biggest producer and seller of mobile phones in the world. 
despite the U.S. attacks on it. So that's sort of, it's indicating that the U.S. is fearing that, that technological, losing that, that technological edge. And that's going to have implications for financial control too because the Chinese have stated it fairly clearly. They want to get control of a significant slice of blockchain technology, which is about information effectively, data, which is going to be the basis of new financial Roots, and that's going to be the way in which China is going to displace the role of the U.S. dollar. So those sort of implications are, the U.S. is very well, well aware of those sorts of things. Now, when we come to Australia, Australia is in a different position because there is this old sort of neocolonial attachment to the U.S. and the idea of a big brother protecting Australia in this part of the world. But as we know, in the last four decades at least, the economic links with Asia, East Asia and China in particular have grown very strongly. So now there's, in Australia we have a different situation which is that the oligarchy, the elite in Australia is rather torn. On the one hand there's a, there's a new wave of pro-US sentiment to try and you know, engage in this new Cold War. People are saying it could be a hot war. I, I hope and expect that it will not be but Australia has sent warships to the South China Sea and China is very aware of those sorts of things. But at the same time, there are important economic powers within the Australian system which are alarmed about this and don't want to destroy the links with China. Even uh, the uh, Australian ministers, Maurice Payne and the other one, I think Reynolds, have been saying to the US, look, we're not going to destroy our relationship with China because China is Australia's major trade partner and it's held up the Australian economy in certain periods when there's been regional recession, for example, the Asian financial crisis. So I think Australia has a, a quite a, a distinct sort of role here. You may not know it by the way in which current politicians are associating themselves with the Trump administration, but um, there is disquiet within the, the Australian elite over this new Cold War, as you put it. And I'd imagine the farmers' federations, the national farmers, aren't too happy either. Well, that's right. In terms of exports, you know, it's the um, it's the miners that are the biggest ones there. But there are a lot of other economic interests, particularly agri- in agriculture, as you say, that are concerned about a deterioration in Australia-China relations with this new sabre rattling. Just go back to the US for a moment. What about the debt situation? I've read that China holds one trillion dollars of U.S. debt. What does that mean? Yes, it used to be double that, I think. The Japanese hold a trillion too. There's, um, the problem is that everyone in the world, and particularly noticeably with the big economies like Germany and, and Japan and China, is, has really been subsidising the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy for many decades. This is part of the prize that the U.S. is going to lose if it loses its control of the international financial system, basically. And that's this underlies the, the great fear of, of China there, basically. So, yes, I think China was the last of the big powers to start, as they call it, diversifying away from the US dollars in terms of international trade in 2008 with that financial crisis um, 12 years ago. The US dollar is still used in perhaps maybe half or less than half international financial transactions, but there is, as you say, a very big stock of US dollars that our countries hold of course, also a stock of U.S. around the world. And so none of those powers really want the U.S. dollar to crash very rapidly. But certainly there's a commitment to diversification away from a global financial system that is based on the U.S. dollar. 
there is counter leverage there too, but uh, also there's, there really has to be an alternative. And um, up until now, that is to say an alternative to the US dollar and the systems like the SWIFT system, which have entrenched the, the role of the US dollar. And up until now, there hasn't been a political will, despite some attempts, for example, from the Europeans to create one. They have one, it's called Infex, which was to try and avoid US Cuba back in the 1990s. And these days, Iran and now Russia and China, and you see the this sort of same war going on with the US trying to sabotage the, the Russian gas pipeline to Germany and so on. So all of these sorts of things are the US trying to hang on to its control of that privileged position and to extract rents from what they call emerging economies. You know, there's been this long-term resentment of borrowing, of, let's say, of US software like Microsoft software in in many parts of the world, but particularly in, in East Asia. So there's that inherent jealousy that's behind all of these sorts of new developments. But I think the Chinese have made it clear, and I think this is an important point to grasp, that the financial and the technological races going on are linked together. I think China sees it's not going to be able to actually create an international financial mechanism unless it gains, gets the step forward in the technological leap. And that means controlling a very big slice of blockchain technology, that virtual currencies. And where does the Belt and Roads come into this? The Belt and Road or the, you know, the New Silk Road. So the infrastructural projects that China is developing, they're very important because they are really, although they have intercontinental applications been spoken of in relation to Africa, for example. But the, the heart of it really is the integration of um, the infrastructural integration of Asia and Europe. And of course, Asia and Europe together are the, the largest part of the world, effectively. And in the middle of Asia and Europe, you've got Russia and the Middle East, where a lot of the, the US concern is focused at the moment, let's say. It's incredibly important. For example, it's important that China now has these very large agreements with Pakistan and a very large agreement with Iran because that's part of the, the hub, isn't it, of linking up Asia and Europe. And the role of Russia, which has quite good relationships with China these days and its relationships with Europe, that helps explain why the US is trying to play such a spoiler role in terms of Russia having normal relationships with Germany, for example, or um, Russia and China having a greater role in the Middle East. And, of course, the wards of the 21st century in the Middle East have been precisely to do with that, precisely to do with the US trying to establish a region where it dominates through use of its proxies, Israel and Saudi Arabia in particular, and excludes and or dictate rather dictates the terms to other big powers coming into that region. That is to say, what it's most jealous of, China, Russia, and to some extent, an independent Europe coming and having independent relationships with, with the Middle Eastern countries, with the, with the oil-rich um, region. Now, it's managed to intimidate the Europeans sufficiently up until now to not break ranks over all of the, the various, you know, the, I think it's seven or eight wars in the Middle East, basically. There is still not yet normalization of relations between European countries, sort of held together by a, a shaky European Union uh, in terms of the war in Iraq and Syria, which has spread to Lebanon and, of course, the refusal of the Europeans to do anything practical about the colonisation of Palestine. But in the meantime, because of the failure of those sorts of wars, precisely it's Russia and China that have been 
now integrating themselves more closely into the Middle East and with much better relationships with the independent countries there. So it's backfired on the U.S., um, those wars in the Middle East have been important part of the, the obstacle or the front that the U.S. has been trying to create to prevent the integration of Europe and Asia. The other one that's important to mention briefly is that Eastern Europe, the late uh, Brzezinski from the U.S. wrote a book called something like The Great Grand Chessboard, in which he outlined what is to some extent a reality now, that is to say the U.S. was going to use East European states, former socialist states, in particular Poland and Ukraine, to create a type of barrier, to create a new iron curtain between Russia and, and Europe and preventing good normal relationships between Russia and Europe. And that is understood too. Can I bring in the viewpoint that the US has to have a threat or an enemy so that its industrial military complex can continue to grow? Yes, that's true too. And of course it's true that war is an industry in itself. But I think that we can't see that out of context of imperial strategy. And imperial strategy is about controlling entire regions and controlling entire peoples and markets and so on. So there is a strategy behind that. Of course, in the meantime, yes, you have a, a military-industrial complex which is consuming growing economies, growing a, a, a economy which in many respects is in a deep crisis, a deep industrial crisis. You know, the deindustrialization of North America is one of the important phenomena behind this and it, it links back to the, the to the strength of the US dollar and the fact that the, they can't compete even at a technological level they can't really compete now with with China for example I think really that all of those um, uh, recognition of the role of um, conflict and the economic dividends that often come from conflict shouldn't be seen out of context of a grand strategy that, that's behind it. Talk about China's South China Sea claims. What do you see as the truth of their territorial claim? Well, it seems to me that China is playing a very hardball game with its neighbours, with its immediate neighbours, that is to say with the Philippines at other times, um, with Vietnam also. But those things are more, let's say, it seems to me that China is more aggressive those areas and the attacks on it by the US. Remember, for example, the Korean Peninsula and the whole, you know, the division of the Korean, the Korean people for the last 70 years has one of the important rationales for initially was the first Cold War in terms of trying to contain the Soviet Union. And now it's an important position of the US. You know, the US has 30,000 troops in South Korea facing China. So it's an important strategically for the U.S.'s attempt to contain China to be in Korea. So the Chinese are very aware of that and their attitude to, to the whole Korean Peninsula is very much conditioned by that. So the same sort of thing with the Philippines, which has been seen traditionally as a some sort of near colony of the U.S., although there's been some independent noises in recent times. China is playing hardball there in a way that it doesn't really do in other parts of the world. And I think those things are going to have to be determined between the neighbours there. But the US, of course, is using it as a pretext to try and generate a reaction against China, as it is in many other spheres. And that's why it's dragged an apparently willing Canberra up into the South China Sea. And, of course, China now is saying, what on earth is Australia doing in the South China Sea? It has no 
linked to it, basically, and uh, we have otherwise good economic relationships with Australia. Why is Australia antagonising the Australia-China relationship by sending warships into the South China Sea over small territorial disputes? You know, they're over some islands, really. They're not significant resources, but they do have implications for exclusive economic zones and the strategic control of territory. What on earth is Australia doing in that area? They could also have the point of view of what is Australia doing in the area of Hong Kong, offering to take Chinese people here from Hong Kong who want to come. Well, I don't think they're too worried about Australia taking people from Hong Kong. Probably they imagine they can take as many as they like, really. <laughs> Strategically, yes, of course, what, what on earth has it got to do with Australia? After all, the police in Hong Kong certainly didn't kill as many people in all of the protests there as the, the police in the U.S. do virtually every day, every week in the U.S. You know, it's a manufactured pretext for moral outrage there. There is one other contradiction I'd like to point out because I think we shouldn't lose sight of the contradictions between Australian interest and U.S. interest in this anti-China campaign, and that is that, as you pointed out, you know, there are these agricultural ambitions that Australia has with selling um, agricultural produce to China as also to Europe and, and the US, which have blocked it with their various protection measures. But one thing that just happened recently was that the US made a record sale of agricultural products to China, or let's say China made a very big purchase from the US, which was something that the Trump administration had always wanted, basically. But So in other words, while Australia, through antagonising its biggest trade partner, is putting in jeopardy possibly some of those exports. And, of course, the U.S. has been pushing, Secretary of State Pompeo in particular has been pushing the Australians to go in harder against China and potentially jeopardise that trade. The U.S. has been jumping over the top and selling more agricultural products to China. Now, potentially at the expense of, of Australian exporters. We saw a very similar thing happening with Iraq, by the way, back in uh, back in the 90s and around the time of the invasion. There was this jealousy and this jostling position between Australia, Canada and the US about selling grain, for example, to Iraq. And so maybe that the US is pushing a compliant Morrison government into something which is going to damage the interests of, of exporting companies here. Can you talk a little about the other countries in that region? You've said that the Philippines are on the side of the US, but what about the other countries? Has the US been able to coerce them to support their view on China? The Philippines traditionally this post-colonial relationship with the US because the US effectively bought the Philippines from Spain more than a century ago and then Really, the Philippines only became independent after the Second World War and the U.S. has maintained this relationship there. So that's the the major one that's being focused on. But then you have Japan. Now, Japan, of course, also was colonized by the U.S. or semi-colonized by the U.S. and um, has had its international outreach, let's say, restricted constitutionally and through pressure with the U.S. and also the, the Korean Peninsula is Part of the, you know, the constellation of forces that the U.S. uses to try and keep those parts of the world divided. I um, mean, Japan also was an imperial power in the Korean Peninsula and in China. The U.S. has that influence then in Japan. It has had that influence in the Philippines. 
Vietnam and China have had their own differences, basically. But the U.S. is going to find a way to exploit those sorts of differences to try and keep itself in the picture. Really, it's it's playing, once again, a spoiling game, trying to generate conflict in the region. I mean, this is exactly what it does in Latin America and the Middle East, of course. If you can divide people, find some pretext to divide people, this is why... For example, the campaign about the Uyghur Muslims in Western China, in many respects, entirely beaten up by the US for its own purposes to try and induce some sort of uh, moral campaigning against China. And indeed, Amnesty International, which has long since been co-opted by the, the US State Department and other, some other Western governments, dutifully launched a campaign you know, in defense of the Uyghur Muslims as if the U.S. Um, had any concern about Muslim people after what it's been doing in the Middle East for the last 20 years. But in, generally in the region, in the East Asia region, the U.S. is going to seize on any uh, dispute and inflame it with the idea of making itself some sort of champion for democracy and human rights, which we've seen the hollowness of that in so many arenas in the past. What do you believe is the true story about the Uyghur people? We're talking about a region of... Xinjiang in Western China, which has had a somewhat different history and uh, large parts of its population are Muslim. And there's really no particular problem with Islam in, in China, in that part of China. In fact, the, the growth of mosques, whether you think it's a good thing or not, the growth of mosques in the last 20 years has been astronomical. I saw some figures recently that there's the number of mosques there increased quite a lot. But you have another thing there, which is the, this radicalization process through the influence of the Saudis, which has introduced a, a section of fanatical Uyghur Muslims into Turkey and into Syria. And they are now one of, the, one of the groups that's occupying Idlib in North Syria, for example. So there is also a... You've got a de-radicalization program going on in Western China there, which because... China doesn't want that type of extremist, salafist Islam, which is sectarian against other people of the religions, spreading in its part of the world there. This is something the US, of course, has, has encouraged, made flourish in the Middle East and in Central Asia, with that same aim in mind, to try and divide people and then take advantage of those sorts of divisions. I mean, the US incited the Saudis to create ISIS in Iraq initially, ISI in Iraq, and then it spread to Syria. They backed up and got the Europeans to back them up in supporting Jabhat al-Nusra, you know, the Al-Qaeda franchise uh, and various fractions and you know, renamed alphabet soup groups there to do the same thing to Syria and to Lebanon. China has some genuine concerns about so-called radicalization with, with sectarian Islam. But Islam in general, I think it's been enormously exaggerated, um, the situation in Western China. And there's been... Chinese themselves produce um, material about Islam there and everyone dismisses it saying, oh, it's state propaganda, but everything you get from the other side is also state propaganda, basically from the US and its various channels. So I think that the position of Islam in, in China is not really something particularly of concern to Western countries. It's really, um, it's really a huge distraction, really. After all, it's the Western countries that have invaded and sent proxy armies into and allowed ethnic cleansing all through the Middle East and affecting mainly Muslim people. I mean, why would Western people be so concerned about Muslims in Western China anyway? Trump has got about 100 days left of his first term. 
being portrayed as a fool, ignorant, whatever. What do you believe his role with China has been and those behind him? I've always thought that Trump actually does represent a significant section of corporate America, uh, corporate North America. What he's doing with China and, to some extent, Russia, in fact, he was more of a reluctant player with the anti-Russia campaign, but you see it's very strongly backed up by both major parties there. I think Biden, Pretender, um, who represents the Democrats these days, is saying he's going to be tougher on China than Trump and tougher on Russia in terms of the Nord Stream gas pipelines of Germany and all these sorts of things. So there's a bidding war between the two factions. I think Trump stands up because he's an ugly persona, basically, I think, North American liberals have been very upset with Trump because he is the ugly face of American imperialism, effectively. And they would rather a suave, a more a Clinton or an Obama figure, or whatever there, to massage the, the self-image. I think it's a big offence to the self-image of North American liberals to have someone like Trump there. But I don't think that substantially he's doing things that different. And that includes in areas like the immigration, you know, and the so-called illegal immigration. A lot of those areas, the differences are more in style than in substance, really. So now the problem is that the U.S. now is in a, a very deep recession. Uh, just some figures came out just yesterday saying that it was deeper than even the IMF had been had been predicting. Mismanaged its crisis, the, the the pandemic crisis, much more badly than than most other countries. Some of the China watchers in Australia are saying this has been a opportunity for China to come through, even though the the pandemic seems to have begun in China. I'm not saying the origin of the virus is in China, but the first outbreak was in China. China has managed to control it in a way that the U.S. hasn't. The U.S. is now struggling through a big second wave of infections there, and so hasn't been able to certainly lead on that, that issue. And by contrast, Trump has been cutting off his ties to multilateral institutions, um, blaming the, the World Health Organization, for example. It's left a vacuum, some Australian commentators say, I think former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd points this out, it's left a vacuum which... Beijing is very happy to jump into, basically. Beijing has been providing aid to other countries in terms of protective equipment to deal with the, the pandemic, for example. The US has been trying to steal it from other countries. And, and so there's been a, a, a very stark contrast on that area. And what it all means to the US is that the US, of course, everyone's going to emerge from this epidemic at some stage. But how will they emerge from it is becoming the important question, I think. And one uh, important prediction I saw from uh, a man, uh, Nouriel Roubini, who predicted the, the crash in 2008 was that there's not going to be a very easy way out of this crisis economically for the US because, and for the world because we're going to come out of that into this huge trade war, you know, this huge confrontation, which is about the control of technology, control of finance, the breakdown of normal trade relationships mainly being sabotaged by the U.S. and the, those that go along with the U.S. And there isn't going to be an easy way out in a, a bouncing back of international trade relationships because of this, uh, the new Cold War, as you call it. Finally, Tim, has it been detrimental in any way for Australia to be so close to Trump, particularly on the China issue? Yes, of course it has. It, it always has been, uh, even 
some old conservatives like the late Malcolm Fraser pointed that out, there was always a downside to Australia being so dependent on whatever the US regime was. And we've seen the Morrison government, for example, ditch effectively several decades of relationship building with China to go into this new confrontation with China. They, they just dismantled the, um, the Australia-China Council, set up a new agency there. There's significant restructuring, even though the Morrison administration are saying we are not going to damage our relationship with China, but they are doing such a lot of things to damage the relationship with China at the moment. It's, it's likely there will be substantial damage. There's already been some, I think, in terms of some of the export fields, you know, China's imposed some restrictions. So it's always been a disadvantage to Australian interests to simply jump into the, the US with its latest war and its latest confrontation. And unfortunately, China is going to be one of those big ones because, um, as I said at the beginning, the Australian economy and its external economy, its currency, are very much linked into the trade relationship with China in the last few decades. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Two events in Timor-Leste in recent times have shaken the confidence that there could be better times as a result of a resource-led recovery, and they are connected. They being the actions by Woodside Petroleum regarding the Greater Sunrise Project off the south coast and the related devaluation of energy pricing, together with the shifting political dynamics in Timor-Leste, also connected to the project, and the added worrying impact of the Corona-19 virus. Trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy has been following this issue for many years. And I asked him first to look back on this Greater Sunrise project when things started to go pear-shaped and also how far back do we need to go to get a clear picture of what is now happening regarding Greater Sunrise? Oh, I think that uh, with Greater Sunrise, you've got to go back a decade or more, 2006, I think, when there was an overthrow of the, the government at that time in the turmoil of 2006. And there was a, a massive change of strategy following that and a different national development plan adopted in 2011 which was built around the idea of 
a national petroleum and petrochemical industry based on the south coast of Timor-Leste using the gas uh, from the Greater Sunrise gas fields. Now, there's been a lot of um, backwards and forwards, including the quite interesting uh, negotiation with Australia for the uh, seabed boundary, which had an impact on you know, who was going to get what from the Greater Sunrise gas field. And then there's been... Oh, I don't, it's hard to get the right adjectives for this, Jan, but uh, you know, really a, a very dynamic or volatile period last year when uh, the government of Timor-Leste purchased the majority share of the Greater Sunrise Joint Venture. And, and I think that was really like a bit of a shock to the major shareholder, which is Woodside. And then you know, we've had this more recent collapse of the price of uh, oil and gas in January this year, before the COVID-19, but only made a bit worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. So all of the whatever else was going on, which was difficult for um, Woodside and the Timor government and the Australian government, I presume, the actual economics of everything changed rather drastically uh, this year. So I think you have to put all of those elements together to sort of see what an impasse we've reached now. Was there ever much support for having the project on the south coast of Timor? I think there is. There's been a, you know, a sustained minority critical voice in Timor in the educated elite um, about this, uh, saying that it was a wrong-headed development strategy. To some extent, the Fretland, uh, which is a big party, a political party, has been critical of the approach, but not in outright confrontation. Um, and it's put most of its energy into the seabed boundary issue rather than the development of the gas field itself. And then um, for, as for the mass of the people, I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, that, it, that there's a massive uh, support specifically for, you know, developing the greater sunrise field on the south, on the, you know, for the south coast industrialization of the country. But there is an enormous patriotic uh, sense in Timor and the population that the Greater Sunrise resources belong to the people of Timor-Leste. Now, the government paid out Shell and ConocoPhillips the, the amount of $650 million. Where did that come from? Well, that came from the budget of uh, the Timor's government and it basically came from the Petroleum Fund, which is like the National Wealth Fund, which has got about Last time I looked, it was about $16 billion in balance. It'll be about 15 now, I think. And that is the main source of the budget of Timor-Leste as well. So while revenue flows into the petroleum fund from the Bayou-Undan field, you know, it's been either stable or slowly, slightly increasing, but basically stalled around that figure of $16 billion for the last few years. Given the fall of the price of oil and gas now, I, I think... You know, it probably, probably uh, is going backwards a bit to finance the budget of the country. And, so you, and, and if you look at the budget and you say, well, 650 million US, you know, went to uh, just buying the shares in the, in the joint venture, you can see that was an extra big bite. And that did cause some political upheaval or controversy last year. Is that the cause, of, a major cause of why Gushmao is in trouble at the moment? <laughs> I think under, it's an underlying, that's the underlying issue. But in, you know, the forefront has been his, 
again, hard to get the right adjectives, but he's made a huge issue out of having some close associates appointed as ministers, the Prime Minister and uh, the President, both working in a way that meant that that didn't happen. And then there was also a controversy about the state of emergency to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, you can see those two issues are not directly related to the gas field, but they they seem to me, just my interpretation, that Mr. Gusmao sort of overreached himself, seeming to think he could just demand everything he wanted, no matter how idiosyncratic it might be. And And I think, you know, that the actual problems associated with Greater Sunrise also come from that overreach uh, on his part. So he, he of course, uh, defines himself as the personification of the national liberation of the country, which is contentious, but uh, nothing seems to stop him asserting it. And then he made the seabed boundary, the sort of new frontier in the liberation struggle. And when he declared victory on that, then he made the uh, Tasimanu project, the petroleum and petrochemical industry on the south coast, the next symbolic you know, thing for achieving national liberation. So that's all wrapped up in his ego. So where does he standing now in the government and also in the, in the population as a whole? Well, I, th- I think he's still held in high regard in the population. He has got no role in the government now that... Um, he sort of exploded his own majority coalition, which was the government, um, in January this year, and then he deepened the problem through, uh, I'm not sure of the months now, but I think um, in uh, March, but again in, in June. In, in January, his own government put forward a budget, and then he, he asked his own party, which is the biggest block of the governing coalition, to abstain. And when Fretland voted against it, it was defeated, and that, that creates a constitutional problem. So then he tried to create a different governing coalition with a majority without the Prime Minister's party, which has got uh, eight members in the Parliament of 65. He sort of managed to do that, with, but not properly. You know, so the, the process was dragged out while different components of that new coalition had congresses and ratified the idea formally. But then in the middle of all of that, he, he asked his coalition to vote against an extension of the state of emergency to deal with that pandemic. Most of them didn't. <laughs> so that new coalition fell apart before it was even consolidated. Now, his party at CNRT, it's, it's on its own. It's got 21 members in the parliament, but by themselves, they're well short of a majority, which would be 33 members. So Fretland is now part of the majority uh, coalition or it's, it's, it's got a more nuanced approach but basically it's assuring the Prime Minister Tamatan Ruik of uh, a confidence and a budget they still haven't got as far as, as adopting a new budget for, for this year and uh, I'm, I'm informed that it'd be around October so a couple of months yet before that can be achieved. I see different commentators saying, you know, Shinanda Gushmao is being slowly defanged or, you know, he's much diminished and so on. And it's true, he somehow really mismanaged his politics as well as his policy this last couple of years. For now, he's relatively isolated, but that doesn't mean he's not going to make some kind of surprise comeback. 
No, well, he's a man who likes power and is used to power. Yes, he's he's very um, dictatorial. <coughs> excuse me, dictatorial in his his basic approach. He he has to think more like a military commander giving orders to his army uh, than a political leader building consensus. That's been a problem. There's been this downgrading of uh, you know, write downs by the major oil and gas companies around the world following the events of this year. And uh, in, in the middle of July, Woodside did a major write down of its assets. That included a write down of the Greater Sunrise asset. It, it owns 30, I've got the thing, 33.44% of the Greater Sunrise joint venture. It had valued it at July at $170 million and it wrote it down to zero. That's sort of a throwing down the gauntlet from the Australian side to the Timorese government, saying to them, well, basically, your $650 million you spent buying the 56.56% of the joint venture, it's worth nothing as well. It's, it's gone. So it's a challenge to the Timorese government to come back and start talking about some other development pathway for Greater Sunrise, and I'm hoping that is possible. But you can see how much money is being wasted by you know the dynamics around the, the Greater Sunrise, because you know just valuing that share that they've got, they paid 650 million based on Woodside's valuation. It's really only worth 287 million US. So it's roughly 50% written off, even if they pretend nothing else has happened. It's a, a shock, I think, in the oil and gas sector, and I think the people in the sector are watching closely what happens. And I, you know, I personally hope that the Timorese themselves can cut their losses here, put some sort of uh, value back into the Greater Sunrise, and, and that would involve them agreeing that uh, yeah, we we will let. Um, the joint venture take the gas to Darwin. Uh, we will get the best uh, revenue stream we can get from it. We will rethink the development of the south coast of Timor-Leste, where quite a bit of money has already been spent on you know, infrastructure. So the, the other thing about that is that it's very unlikely that anything would happen with Greater Sunrise till after 2030. You know, that's a big gap in years between the closing you know, of production at Bayou Undan which is roughly going to be 22, 23, so pretty soon. Um, so there's going to be you know, maybe seven years or more when the revenues into the country are really pretty low, zero. And what other avenues do they have to build up that fund? There's no, there's no alternative to Greater Sunrise available. So all, all of the currently existing fields uh, have been uh, exhausted or are about to, about to be finished and Greater Sunrise was the next in line, but all of this political uh, infighting about it has really meant that it's, it's going to be delayed, if ever, coming on stream. What's happening with the pandemic? I'm not really sure um, of the details at the moment, and I, if there was a you know, deterioration, I would have heard about it. So I think that uh, there's very few cases. I think there may have been only one person die, if any. So there's a lot of trepidation about transmission across the border with West Timor um, because there's more cases in Indonesia. There's a similar discussion happening with PNG and West Papua as well. You know, it may well be just a matter of time before, you know, like we're experiencing in Australia, that they will get another surge of cases coming. But they they have got more 
uh, personal protective equipment. They've got more testing capacity. I don't know how much hospital beds really they've got. Um, the health system as a whole was fairly run down the time the pandemic arrived. And I don't really think that, you know, given the budgetary problems they're having and political problems, they haven't had any change of policy and change of budget to enable a serious build-up of uh, resources in that field. So are you saying the good work of the Cuban doctors and the Cuban health workers there over the years has sort of diminished to this extent? Well, I think it's, it's degraded for over many years now because there's been really uh, less and less spent on health in the budget. Find that like medicine is just not available in the hospital uh, pharmacy. People don't have the money to buy drugs. It is bad. It's one of those priorities that uh, people in Timor want to address, but they they're nearly there. I think I think we should see a, quite a different set of priorities in the next budget when it comes down. Um, and we've got uh, this parliament should continue until May June. 2023. There's roughly uh, three years to go. So they can make a difference, I think. And thanks to Peter Murphy. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Today and next week I'll be featuring a forum titled The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation, which was held online on the 22nd of July. The convener was Melanie from Free Palestine, Melbourne, and the three speakers were Diana Bruti, Palestinian-Canadian lawyer and a former spokesperson for the Palestine Liberation Organisation, who is best known as her work as a legal advisor and participant in Israeli-Palestine peace negotiations. Mahu Magrabi is a Melbourne journalist, a feature editor at The Age, foreign editor of both The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, from 2014 to 2017. And Dr. Yara Harari is an activist and senior Palestine policy fellow at Al Shabarka, the Palestinian Policy Network. We begin with Mel. I thought we'd just kick off uh, the discussion by grounding this chat within a context of how things are in Palestine, particularly around the coronavirus. The coronavirus situation is obviously directly relevant to the annexation discussion in a number of ways. We do know that when cases first hit Bethlehem, the response was immediate and the city went into a really hard sudden lockdown uh, and the West Bank shut itself off in the hope of keeping the virus out. But obviously in the last few months, last few weeks, the situation has become a lot worse. So I thought Yara and Diana, could you share with us a little bit of what it's been like in 48 for Palestinians, in Israel for Palestinians, and in the West Bank? Diana, perhaps, do you want to go first? Um, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and thanks for inviting me. And, and I want to thank all the people who are always on the back end uh, working um, so hard to make these things happen. And I also want to 
um, say how honored I am to share a panel with Yara and with um, with Meher. So thank you very much for um, for the opportunity, and thanks for everybody who's who's joining as well. In terms of the coronavirus, there's a number of issues that I want to touch upon that lay the groundwork for the bigger picture in terms of what is happening here. The first is that in terms of the rates of infection, we've seen um, a huge increase in the rates of infection just over the course of the past month where we've seen doubling of the number of infections over just over the course of the past three weeks, actually, from somewhere around 20,000, 22,000 to now around 50,000, which is a great leap in terms of the numbers. But it's not just the rate of infection that is important. It's all of the infrastructure that is very important that I know that Yara is also going to touch upon. The first is that when looking at the infrastructure that is in place, the Israeli government to the current date has still not done anything to make sure that either the rates of infection go down in Palestinian areas or that Palestinians are able to get adequate treatment. It's important for people to note that all of the hospitals that are in Palestinian towns inside 48, each and every one of them predates the establishment of the state of Israel. And each and every one of them was actually a hospital that was designed by various churches, and they're not meant to be these major hospitals that are able to take on this massive number of cases. That, coupled with the fact that they've been very slow in terms of testing in these areas, has meant that we're still not entirely clear where it is that that the rates of infection are currently standing. And that is something that is very important to keep in mind because we just don't know where things are going to be headed. The second element, which is important to keep in mind, is that Israel has, in the case, as it's done in other instances as well, it's using the guise of the coronavirus to boost its security apparatus. So, for example, we've seen that the Israeli government has been pushing forward, they've pushed it through legislation and then in other means as well, to try to be able to continually tap into phones of uh, individuals as a whole, but Palestinians in particular. Now, we as Palestinians, we, we've been warning about this for quite some time with the the fact that the Israelis have pushed the security apparatus and hidden the security apparatus behind other means. And so among the majority Jewish-Israeli public, there's a willingness to go along with it. But what they don't realize is that this is going to have, it already has had long-term repercussions and will continue to have long-term repercussions, particularly as Israel tries to legitimate or tries to hide its surveillance techniques under the guise of coronavirus. And then the third point that I want to touch on, again, infrastructure-wise, which links back to annexation, is that this current government that we have in place, which we've seen that Gantz has joined forces with Netanyahu, this was supposed to be a government that was in place for only one purpose, which is to address all of the outcomes and all the impacts of the coronavirus with one exception, and that is on annexation. And so we've seen that this government that is supposed to be focused on everything relating to dealing with the coronavirus, whether it's providing compensation, whether it's trying to reduce the rates of infection, whether it's trying to make sure 
that Palestinians are being treated and so on, that instead this government is also using this opportunity to push forward annexation. And then one final point that I want to make before I turn it over to Yara is that we've seen that when it comes to Palestinians inside 48 that are bearing the disproportional brunt of this coronavirus because it is Palestinian doctors and nurses who've been on the front lines, who've been treating these cases. And even though they're on the front lines of treating these cases, of course, the racism that is inherent in the Israeli system has not at all abated. Yeah, thanks, Diana. That was a very important sort of overview of uh, the Palestinian community in 48. And thanks to everyone who's joining us and, and of course, all the organizers uh, and hosts. And it's in particular particularly important and I thank you for recognizing that the indigenous land that that you all are it's an important reminder as well for Palestinians that we maintain these connections and solidarities of our indigenous brothers and sisters all over the world I'm going to talk briefly a bit about the situation of the pandemic in in the West Bank and Gaza there's a couple of things I would like to mention first though Mel in your introduction you said that the West Bank sort of shut itself off in particular Bethlehem was one of the first places to sort of lock down um, in the West Bank actually it was Israel that shut Bethlehem off Bethlehem is a city that is basically surrounded by separation wall the apartheid wall that Israel built and it was Israel that decided to close it off and the PA sort of claimed it as a as a policy of their own and the West Bank itself doesn't get to decide the PA itself doesn't get to decide whether it closes itself off it's actually very much a facade and it's at the, the whim of Israel within sort of Palestinian Authority controlled areas there have been checkpoints but really the movement remains pretty active particularly settlers in the West Bank are coming and going across the Green Line as are Palestinian workers so up until I would say about mid-June, Palestine, let's say the West Bank and Gaza, a relatively low number of infections. We're talking about 800 in total. And this was sort of being dubbed as a, as a success story from the Palestinian Authority that, you know, the sort of immediate lockdown. And indeed, uh, the West Bank and Gaza did lock down a lot quicker than many other places, particularly Europe uh, and the US. And so it was being dubbed as a success story. What's happened in the last month has been pretty drastic. Deanna mentioned that this was, you know, the same for within 48. But in the last month, there's been increased infections, an astronomical increase in infections. So we've gone from about that 800 to, let's say, maybe 1,000 uh, mid-June to, to a nearly total of 11,000. So we've seen a 10,000 increase in recorded cases over the last month. Uh, and that's quite severe and drastic. And, and if you look at the sort of relative to the population, this is one of the highest infection rates in the world. A lot of that has been uh, in the Hebron governorate, which is the largest governorate population-wise, but there is also a high number um, of infections in particularly vulnerable communities, including in refugee camps, where, of course, you can imagine people live in very cramped conditions and the possibility of self-isolating or quarantining is, is impossible, uh, where you have families uh, really living in, in very small spaces. I think this all needs to be put in the context of a healthcare system in both the West Bank and Gaza that has suffered for decades from Israeli military occupation and also donor de-development, and I'll explain that in a minute. But the decades of Israeli military occupation have, of course, led to all kinds of uh, issues within the healthcare system, namely 
acute shortages in medical supplies and staff, very sort of limited facilities being built. Indeed, Gaza hospitals pretty much constantly run at zero stock, which means that they have less than a month's supply at all times. I'm going to run by some figures here so that you can sort of get an, an overview of what the healthcare system looks like. In the West Bank alone, there are only 255 intensive care beds. That's for a population of 3 million. In Gaza, there are 120 um, intensive care beds for a population of 2 million. In the West Bank and Gaza combined, there are only 6,440 hospital beds. I mentioned earlier the, the word de-development. De-development is a term um, that was written about quite extensively um, by uh, the scholar Sarah Roy in the context of Gaza. But what it means is that actually this donor culture, the donor context, means that Palestinian civil society and Palestinian infrastructure institution have actually uh, not been developed, have actually faced purposeful and deliberate process of de-development. And to give you an example, health clinics in Gaza have actually gone down uh, over the last decade from, from 56 health clinics to 49, and yet the population has increased massively. Additionally, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, you can't even get above basic health care. So operations such as heart operations, anything to do with cardiac care, cancer, eye surgery, all of these things, you have to be referred to a hospital in East Jerusalem or in 48. This is at the mercy of the Israelis giving you a permit to do so. So overall, the health system is pretty bad, uh, and I would say that it's collapsing under the, the current crisis. And I want to stress importantly that, you know, Israel is not a regime in this case which is adding or exasperating the situation. Israel is actually directly responsible for this situation in the West Bank and Gaza. And uh, I've dubbed it as a regime of comorbidity. It has direct responsibility. And indeed, in the case of the West Bank and Gaza as an occupying power, it has uh, a responsibility under international law to provide for and to take care of the very people that they occupy. This is not being done. And actually, there is a rather sick narrative that was going around at the beginning of the pandemic that there was cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and, and the Israelis, and maybe that this would lead to some kind of peace, that finally the two sides are seeing eye to eye. In reality, what this cooperation was, was Israel allowing tidbits of medical supplies donated by international donors into the West Bank and not even allowing the full amount in. So Israel is being praised for doing something which it should be doing itself. Uh, and this was a, a narrative that was quite dominant in the mainstream media and what a sick one at that. You're right to draw our attention to that and to, to recognise the responsibility that Israel has in this circumstance and it's deliberately creating this scenario. And on top of that, so there's not just this health circumstance as pandemic situation. As Deanna mentioned, Against this backdrop, you have a government now, after three attempts at an election and to form government in 12 months, the Israelis finally managed to form this, this emergency government with two powers, one for coronavirus response and the other, as, as Diana's already pointed out, for annexation, which is what triggered the conversation that we're having now. It, it triggered a big worldwide debate. wonder if very briefly, Diana, you could just summarise for us what was actually being proposed this 1 July deadline, although I hesitate to call it that. I want to be clear, there, there isn't a July 1st deadline. It was a July 1st date that was available, and, and there's a difference between the two. So in the agreement that was signed between Gantz and between Netanyahu, 
Part of that agreement was, as I mentioned earlier, which is that they, they can begin the process of annexation. And in that agreement, there were two elements to it, which is that either the Likud or whoever, there can be a, a law that is submitted, a bill that's submitted in through the Knesset, through the parliament, and approved, and uh, Gantz's people will not object. Or they can do it through a second means, which is through the cabinet, the members of the cabinet that can also introduce a bill, and also Gantz and his people will not object. They won't, they won't go against. So July 1st, the only like magic about it was that that was the first date that that process was available. It wasn't a deadline in any way, shape, or form. The fact that the world started focusing on it as a deadline was a little bit not only incorrect, but it, it has given Netanyahu a pass which is to say that now that that date has passed, today is what is the 22nd of July, people are saying, phew, well, we averted annexation, let's go back to normal. That's not the case at all. I want to be clear that people know that, that this has not been something that has been averted. All that July 1st was, was the first day that they could begin the process of it. It wasn't a deadline to actually do it. So what is being proposed? We don't know. What we do know is we know bits and pieces of the various plans, but they have not issued a comprehensive plan in terms of what it is that they're going to do. And this is also very important to keep in mind why it is that they're not doing it. So let's talk about what they, what we do know. What we do know is that the various plans that they're talking about, all of them include the entirety of the settlements. And then others of them include annexing the parts of the Jordan Valley. And then others of them include annexing the parts of the western part as well, such as the major settlement blocks in close to the Bethlehem region. Any one of those annexation plans that they put forward is detrimental and causes harm to Palestinians. And I will explain what that does in just a second. But the second element that we know is that in their plans for annexation, what they've said is that they are going to take the land, but not the people. In fact, in some places, they've already come forward and said that they learned the mistakes from the annexations that they did when it came to Jerusalem, where they extended residency to Palestinians in East Jerusalem, not citizenship. And just so that we're clear, granting permanent residence to people who've been there for generations is not only abhorrent, but it's also what they're not doing is they're not making sure that these people have any permanence. There's nothing permanent about permanent residency. In the Israeli mindset, in the way that it works, is that if a person who is from Jerusalem leaves Jerusalem for any significant period of time, or they acquire citizenship, whether through marriage or by immigration or whatever, their residency can be revoked. And we've seen that over 14,000 Palestinians have had their residency stripped since 1967, and more and more are being stripped as well, the, the ones that we actually don't know about. So when it comes to annexation, we know that they're not going to extend citizenship, one. We know that they're not going to extend permanent residency, two. And we do know that they're going to take the land, but not the people. In the taking the land part, again, there's been a lot of focus on What's the minimal amount that Israel can take? And there's been some discussion back and forth between Israel and the donor community. And it's important to bear in mind a few things. First is that 
any taking of the land is illegal. It's it's the, the basic rule number one of international law is you can't take the territory of another state. The reason that that is the very first rule of international law is that the whole point of international law is to try to make sure that states are not engaged in endless wars. And stealing land, of course, is one of the ways to ensure that there is war. Um, so this is why it's a basic tenet. Thou shalt not steal and cannot steal land of another country. The second element of it is not only is it illegal, but the way that Israel has built the settlements and designed the settlements is in such a way that they are supposed to cause harm. That is their modus operandi, is to cause harm. In between, they've made sure that in order to get from one Palestinian town to another Palestinian town, if there is a settlement there, you have to cross through a checkpoint or through a roadblock, through any other means, that there isn't any contiguity between the two. Once you have a settlement there, you have a checkpoint. Once you have a checkpoint there, you also have, in many cases, have walls or some shape or form of the wall. Once you have a checkpoint there, you also have soldiers there. That's the whole point of the settlements, is to make sure that Palestinians are never able to live freely. So whether we're talking about the small annexation that, that some within the cabinet are pushing for or the bigger annexation, the effect is the same. The, the whole point of it is to deny Palestinians their freedom. It's to deny their ability to live the, with any control over their lives. And that's the whole point of it. And I want to be clear, annexation has been going on silently or creepingly, as, as other people have put it, since 1967. If you go throughout any part of the Jordan Valley, you can see that the Jordan Valley has been virtually taken over. It's virtually impossible for Palestinians to be able to move in the Jordan Valley. They certainly don't have access to the natural resources there, whether it's water, potash, or other um, natural resources that are there. It's already taken shape. It's taking place for 53 years. The difference is that I personally believe that by pushing for annexation, this isn't just, as some people put it, the death of the two-state solution or the death of the peace process. Who cares? What they're effectively trying to do is to make sure that the later plans of what they have, their vision for people, are the plans that they put into place. And those plans of what their vision is for people is either people will be removed from their lands, either they will only be allowed to stay if they're quote-unquote loyal to the state, or we will see that people will be completely pushed out and forced into Palestinian areas A. That coupled with the letting loose that Israel is going to allow when it comes to settlers and the settler violence, because the two go hand in hand, the army and the settler violence go hand in hand, are the reasons that people should continue to be alarmed and not just dismiss it as something that's been going on for 53 years. You've been listening to the first part of a forum which was held on the 22nd of July the Palestinian struggle in the era of annexation. The three speakers were Diana Bouti, Dr Yara Harawi and Mahu Magrabi. And we'll hear part two on the program next week. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. 
all profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The 1MDB scandal is acknowledged as the biggest financial scandal of all time. To date, it has gained the scalp of the former Prime Minister of Malaysia. A number of others are facing criminal charges in Malaysia, but there are other devious players who have yet to face the music. Lee Tan, Australian-Malaysian activist and environmental consultant, has been following the story from its outset. Lee, go back to the very beginning. When and why was the 1MDB set up? It probably started around towards the end of 2011 when uh, Najib Razak was first appointed to, to be the Prime Minister for Malaysia. Then he, together with um, an investment, well, I guess I wouldn't call him an expert, but banker, or just somebody with a Harvard Business Law School degree, to set up 1MDB, which is supposedly a national sovereign fund. That fund brought over another sovereign fund from the state of Tringanu, where there's great petroleum resources, so they've got quite a, a fair bit of public funds dashed in that particular state sovereign fund. And from there, they slowly siphoned the money, which rightfully belongs to the country, into all sorts of offshore investment, so-called. And then eventually, a large chunk of that ended up in uh, Najib Razak's personal bank account. It was until some internal leaks, I mean, the irregularities have been reported to the uh, the Reserve Bank of Malaysia. It has been, there's been an attempt to raise it in Parliament, but because at that time, Najib and his um coalition under the name of Barisan National or National Front has controlled the parliament. They were running the country through very draconian laws, protecting those in power and offering very little transparency or accountability. So the matter was never quite getting any airing in the Malaysian public until it got leaked out to um an online news portal called Sarawak Report, which is based in London, basically created and staffed by Claire Rukasa-Brown, who started to kind of uh, develop a blog, a blog site, talking about deforestation in Sarawak, because she was born there. She's related to Gordon Brown. I think she's the sister-in-law of Gordon Brown the former Prime Minister of um, UK. So she's passionate about the rainforest in Sarawak and also the indigenous people and their rights. So she set up this blog and people started to send her, well, these are probably very senior public servants from Malaysia who knew about the scandal but who couldn't actually, um, you know, get anywhere within Malaysia. So they started to send her detailed documents of uh, fund transfer of, you know, showing Najib 
embezzling money, state funds, which eventually ended up in his own personal account. And then the, the Wall Street Journal started to pick up the stories. They started to run it. And under Obama at that time, the Department of Justice in in uh, US uh, was quite proactive in investigating international money laundry matters. And this became one of his biggest cases. And in, in the words of the then Department of Justice, uh, Haid, I uh, can't remember his name, but he says that this is the kleptocracy, the biggest ever kleptocracy case that the DOJ has to manage. So that's how it all began. And then from then on, the domino started to collapse in Malaysian. At the same time, I think it coincided with Malaysian rising up, wanting to have a clean government, um, and they started to organize to have mass street rallies and so on and so forth. And that's how it all began. And lo and behold, kind of, you know, unexpectedly, the last election in Malaysia, which was in 2018, back in May, actually managed to topper the government of Najib Razak and the party or the coalition that has ruled the country for over 60 years. After that, the coalition ascended into power. This, this is a new coalition of all a mixed bag, including Mahathir Mohamad, who then became the prime minister. Yeah, and they started the case against Najib. That was the first thing they did because they knew voters were expecting that. And that's how this case became to be what it is today. And the judgment is good that Najib was charged and found guilty in all of the seven charges brought together by the government against him. But of course, he's not the only one, is he? And there's lots of people outside of Malaysia, including Australian Bank? Yeah, possibly, because the branch of the bank in Malaysia, M Bank, that helped Najib to transfer those money in and out of his account, in and out of the country and so on and so forth, is actually ANZAC Bank has a major share into that M Bank. But, you know, the Australian government has, during the um, Banking Commission of Inquiry, had actually not taken that into consideration, when in fact ANZAC should also the whole whole responsibility for the wrongdoing by his own bank. A link to that too, the founder of M-Bank was actually murdered in broad daylight because he was going to expose the scandal. I think he has already written to the Reserve Bank and the Jeep needed to basically shut him up and he was shot dead in broad daylight by some bandits, so-called. Yeah, all of that, you know, ANZ has linked to it. Tell me about the involvement of Goldman Sachs. A lot of this transaction happens through major financial institutions. I mentioned M-Bank, which is part of the ANZ bank here, and also Goldman Sachs, another one. Um, They were major investors in those advisors, in those banks, were involved in advising how the money 
could be kind of invested in other offshore properties and all sorts of companies and so on and so forth, and hiding them in exchange for very, very hefty kickbacks. We're talking about millions of dollars paid as commissions, way above your normal operations commissions, you know, paid to particular people in those banks who facilitated that kind of transactions and illicit investments. The money laundering actually spread across at least six countries all around the world. Yeah, from Switzerland, UK, Belgium, many countries in the world. You know, USA has been the predominant one. Hong Kong, Singapore. It is really the biggest kleptocracy and money laundering scandal in the world that we have seen. We're talking about billions of dollars of public money being spread out, you know, through very dodgy money laundering activities through all these different countries. Have there been convictions in the other countries? DOJ, which is Department of Justice in the USA, had um, ruled against these, but they did not at that time. Najib Razak was still the Prime Minister. I think that was back in 2016, 2017. DOJ did not uh, name Najib Razak beyond calling him Malaysian and MO1, which means Malaysian officer number one. Everyone knew there was Najib. And there are still cases pending in Switzerland, UK and other countries. Australia did not look into it. Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister when all these cases surfaced and he is a good friend of Najib so he wasn't going to do anything. In fact, he tweeted in support of Najib even when the election came out, toppling his regime, which was very, very odd. But then, you know, Tony Abbott is known for his, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there are still cases pending, and a senior officer of Goldman Sachs has also been charged, and there have been a few jailings of um, investment bankers and so on and so forth. But the key that's been involved, which is Majid Raza, and another one who has been on the run, Joe Lowe, his private kind of advisor, still not in jail. Joe Lowe is uh, nowhere to be found for now. Najib's been bailed out. All he needs to do so far until his appeal is to report to the police station twice a month. Joe Lowe says he's a scapegoat. Do you believe that? No, they all very much in it because they all been um, bathing in the luxuries, you know, outrageous spending thrift after the illicit transactions happened when the money ended up in your bank account, you know, partings away. Joe Lowe particularly has been um, inviting Hollywood actors, even gifted Miranda Cole, an Australian model, and we only knew about it because the Department of Justice in the U.S. ordered all of these celebrities to return the stolen money and the gifts yeah, as part of the U.S. investigation. Who else in Malaysia should be facing charges? There are countless of um, politicians and former senior government officials. 
but a couple of them um, had been pardoned already because as you as listener might know that after the election there had been another coup which has ousted the slightly better coalition government under Mahathir. I mean Mahathir was to be blamed for the downfall of Pakatan Harapan or the Coalition of Hope, which was made up of the previous opposition party who is now back in opposition. You know what I mean. So there's been the court system, the system of justice in Malaysia is rather unstable at the moment. But because this case was set during the reign of the previous government, which was the people's elected government, yeah, and it has already advanced to the stage of sentencing, they haven't been able to touch it. But in other cases, yeah, many of the very corrupt officers been pardoned without charge so far. Surely... Lee Tan, it would have been obvious to a lot of people that Najib and his wife were spending money that they didn't have or they shouldn't have had. They didn't know that, but they just hadn't got any proof at that time where he got the money from. They knew that they'd been corruption, but without the proof, without the evidence, they couldn't actually do a lot. And even until today, you know, Najib still had supporters because he, he's been using those money that he's stolen to bribe, to, to win support from the people who are, you know, maybe the, the people who are in the rural area who hadn't actually seen a lot of money coming their way and who has got limited economic activities that help them to get out from poverty. And it's been a lot of manipulation. And some listeners in Australia might have watched couple of documentaries about the manipulation of big data. And Malaysia has been one of the country, under Najib particularly, paying for Twitter bots, yeah, creating fake news and paying for trolls to target social media, to spread fake news, to counter people who are trying to raise real issues. It's a bit like the, how Trump got elected. How is this scandal and money laundering and whatever affected Malaysia in the, in the world community? Of course, its reputation's been dragged down the mud. And for a brief 22 months, when Malaysia was ruled by the elected government, um, there's been some reform, but not enough of it, mainly because Mahathir was one of the main obstacles to, you know, doing swift, to, to uh, bring about swift change, uh, to restore democracy in Malaysia. It's really sad it, it, that the system in Malaysia is so weak that elected MPs are allowed to jump from one party to another, depending on who is promising more payment or contracts and so on and so forth. Because of these, it actually eroded democracy, even though people had fought very hard to change the government. But because of this party-hopping situation, whatever good governance that's been restored in that brief 22 months is now eroding back to the bad old days. Is this conviction of Najib likely to bring on an election? Difficult to say. There's been prediction of a snap election, 
And in fact, in the East Malaysian state of Sabah, they have just dissolved their state assembly to get ready for a snap election there. I think the outcome of that will de- determine whether or not peninsula or federal government will also follow through a snap election. I think if the opposition wins, it's really hard to know now who is the opposition, who is ruling, and yeah, because they will hop from one party to another, <laughs> subject to you know the biggest payment they will get or benefit they will get. So. Basically, because of the pandemic, the government's enjoying the freedom to do whatever they like, almost. Finally, Lee Tan, how much of that money has been recovered? Recently, Goldman Sachs offered to pay some millions of dollars, but it's very little compared to what was um, sold. And I think some uh, earlier, back in 2018 or 17, or yeah, some of the sources in Switzerland uh, mentioned a figure of 12 billion being stolen in total from what they could gather. DOJ, I think, has evidence for 5 billion that has been laundered through the USA and, and DOJ's return as much as they could recover to Malaysia, which is, you know, a couple of billion dollars. So there's a lot that's been laundered but very difficult to be recovered. And the fact that there's still a lot of money out there to pay uh, elected MPs, the judged party, suggested that these monies are still out there, accessible to Najib. Well, he's appealing the decision, of course. The appeal court may be sympathetic towards him because of the nature of politics in Malaysia. Thank you, Lee Tan. You're welcome, Jen. People out there in the radio world, show some love to the 3CR. You know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, man, great radio station. It is how how it was built by community and the community ownership, and that's a powerful thing to have within community. So show some love, show some support, and please subscribe. From the north to the south to the east to the west, let the baller take you home. Island style represent, your soul to the flow. Love your set represent, raise your pride to the sky. Love it like it's the best. My power bring it back home. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. And now the final part of my interview with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Well, the issue of peace operations and human rights issues are still ongoing. Western Sahara has been in the limelight a little bit in both New York and Geneva. What's been happening? Well, yes, the United Nations have got a mission in Western Sahara called MINURSO, whose name is a mission uh, for a referendum in Western Sahara. This was set up in 1991. 
but the referendum has never been held because of the cooperation lacking on by one of the parties, namely Morocco, who for a while were, were playing ball and thought that they could manipulate the referendum like in Papua New Guinea and get the result they wanted. But when they eventually found that the uh, voter list, when they saw the, the voter list was finally published, they realized that they wouldn't win the vote and so they pulled the plug on the whole process. Since then, the UN's been trying to have direct face-to-face negotiations with different special representatives, uh, personal representatives of the the UN Secretary General appointed to uh, facilitate these these talks, starting with James Baker back in 1999, I think, uh, when Kofi Annan was extremely keen that Africa should not enter the new millennium with a colony still uh, among its countries. But after a lot of seeming progress and an actual timetable of how it was all going to count down and, and work out, Morocco again pulled the plug on James Baker's plan in 2003 or four or five, I think it, uh, somewhere, uh, it was after some years anyway. And, uh, and so they were back at square one. So then they got another one and another one. There's been four or five personal representatives since then, finishing with Horst Perler, who was, seemed to be making excellent progress, resigned when he realized he was not getting uh, full cooperation from the UN, UN itself. He said it was for health reasons and it probably was doing his health a lot of harm having to try and battle all these um, sort of hostile elements who were really trying to not cooperate with the process that was, it was all this strange uh, shadow boxing to standard, double standard. They say they want a referendum and they know that that's the proper way for a country to decolonize according to the United Nations international law, but then they don't really, they want to play friends with, with Morocco and so they don't allow it to happen. It really, this is a silly situation that can't continue. Right at the minute, no appointment's been made. So our, the Polisario representative in the United Nations of New York has been pressing that they should make a new appointment, but until they do that, the Security Council could at least monitor observance of human rights. There should be that monitoring capacity for the peace mission, which is possibly the only one, or according to some measures, there is somebody else that's a bit similar, but they normally say that it's the only uh, UN peace mission that doesn't have that capacity. Uh, again, it was uh, Morocco and, and France that saw to it that they weren't going to have any watchful eye reporting back on their mistreatment of the Sahrawis. And they still don't want that to happen, but it is something that should happen and it is something that should be going on, especially if they're not going to get around to allowing the vote on the future of the country. So in Geneva, that's where the Human Rights Council meets and they have annual sessions around at this time of year. There's a process that takes place called the Universal Periodic Review, 
where every country has to sort of the fine tooth comb put over what they're doing in the areas of human rights. This year, Spain was up for discussion. Various uh, submissions were made. Two countries in particular were making submissions on behalf of Western Sahara, really, Namibia and Timor-Leste. And they were pointing out the way in which Spain has still got responsibility, even though it withdrew, because it hasn't decolonized its former colony that used to be called Spanish Sahara. It's still officially or legally the responsible party. Morocco, while being a kind of de facto administrator over most of the country, not all of the country, because it's a bit liberated, has no official role as administrator. If it did have that role, it would be reporting every year to the United Nations. But it has never made any report during all these years, since 1975, when they first invaded. They have really no standing in law at all. But Spain didn't seem to want to take on the responsibility and there were many um, uh, recommendations made by the two countries and Spain said that they would uh, agree with, they partially agreed with them. Well, that's not adequate because they didn't say which part they agreed with and which they didn't accept. There's no category for partial acceptance. So it just gets categorized as they noted what was said, which is de facto a rejection. It keeps the issue alive, but it hasn't really, at that rate, made much progress, unfortunately. The other thing that's happened in Geneva, there is a group that they call themselves a Geneva group because their long name is very long, but it's basically a group of a number of different um, support groups for the protection and promotion of human rights in Western Sahara. That's the full name. And they have written to the president of the Security Council. This is a rotating chairmanship every month. And this month it is uh, held by Germany. The German ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Christoph Huygen, was sent this letter. And again, they were asking to include a chapter on human rights in the mandate of Minerso and to appoint a new personal envoy to continue the work of uh, Horst Köhler. It's good that it's Germany receiving this letter because they must feel a kind of personal responsibility for the fact that the last end personal envoy was um, a German, be wanting to try and find a good replacement. We hope that something will come of that. And when you read reports of human rights abuses, particularly in prisons, you can see the urgent need to have this in Minerso. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just an outrage, really, that the international should have these independent observers present on the territory, but unable to, um, to, to say anything. Two things have happened in the recent past that I know about, and no doubt lots more. There's a well-known human rights defender called Ahmed Sabai. He's part of the Gadeim Izik group, uh, which followed a mass protest 
in the desert in 2010. All of these people who were regarded as being main instigators of it got very big prison sentences running from 20 years to life. Ahmed Zbai is one of the ones on a life sentence, along with past president of one of the groups monitoring the exploitation of natural resources and others that uh, were certainly key people in the Sahrawi resistance. But this guy, uh, Ahmed Sbai, has a known heart condition. They haven't allowed that to be treated properly at all. And uh, this time he had a heart attack in prison. On an earlier occasion, they'd been torturing him and they... But one of them told the others not to do it anymore because they didn't want this heart, him to have a fatal heart attack uh, while they were torturing him. Uh, you know, it, it's well known, but he's just been neglected, and it's quite criminal not to look after the prisoner's health. The others uh, have chronic illnesses uh, and can't get their treatment for diabetes or any of those, those, those sort of things. So it's one of the ongoing ways in which the Moroccans make life even more difficult for these unfortunate people. The other thing that came to our notice through the work of a Norwegian human rights scholar, Tone Selfen-Mue, was an attack on a student detainee. These are students who've been studying in Morocco, in Agadir, they have to study in Morocco because there's no university in Western Sahara. And the Moroccans like to keep it like that because they get them more under their thumb uh, in Morocco. But then they persecute them and then the Saharawis create a uh, resistance to being persecuted and then they get detained in prison. So this particular young man, Aziz El-Wadi, he was attacked by other prisoners with sharp objects. Uh, the prisoner guards just stood around watching this and didn't do anything to try and stop it. But when the fellow Saharawis who were there tried to stop the attack, the guards stopped them stopping the attack. They pulled them away. So it was pretty clear that the prison guards had actually put instigated the whole incident and in that way, it's, com- it's really a completely uh, disgraceful episode. And, you know, it will be hard, nevertheless, to take them to task over it because they'll just say that the other, the Sahrawi points of view were biased or something, uh, or they'll stop it going to court at all. But, yes, it's, it's, it must be very, very tough for these young people to feel that everybody's against them in that way. Some of them, it just makes them more determined. I'd imagine they're not getting proper medical treatment, though, after an attack like that. I should think so. Yes, that's right. I mean, very often when there's actual um, attacks in the street by police, when there's a demonstration and people are are attacked and, and maybe quite seriously injured, they very often won't go to the hospital because they they expect us to get arrested. That certainly happens. The hospitals, unfortunately, do work sort of hand in glove with the security forces of all kinds, not just the police, but 
there's lots of other different security forces. There's a gendarmerie, but there's also the security surveillance people and all of those. So, yes, if, if, if it's somebody who has been attacked because they were identified as a, a troublemaker, in quotes, they will fear for, for their lives if they go to hospital. <laughs> so yeah, they have to have home remedies at home. So yes, it's it's not a it's not a very bright scene for Saharawis living under occupation. To New Zealand, Kate, where it's believed that the Western Saharan phosphate is that most likely to be imported for the New Zealand trade with Morocco. First, as a history story, a Maori view of the importation of phosphate. Because it's a different perspective altogether from you know what we've been hearing before. One part of it was about the the author who is aware that the current processing of phosphate by balanced agri-nutrients in Tauranga to, in the North Island working on land that belonged to the Maori people and as well as actually taking some of their land for their processing plants they then um, the, the fumes and, and uh, effluent from it pollute the air of the local Maori people. So they've got that in common with the people of North Geelong who have trouble with the uh, smoke coming out of the Intertech pivot plant when it blows in the wrong direction and comes right over their homes and they have to stay inside or they get stinging eyes, they can't ride their bicycles because they can't see with this awful smoke coming out. So we, we're aware of that, but uh, I didn't know of it, hadn't heard about it happening in New Zealand. And that's one thing, but then this author, who's, who's called Tina Nagata, she then interviews a person who has made this very interesting exhibition around the island of Banaba. It's called the Banaba Project. And it involves, it goes right back in history to the 1920s when an agreement was signed by three countries, uh, Australia, the UK and New Zealand, to buy this island, basically, I think. Uh, and they called it Ocean Island, and they bought new Nauru as well for 3.5 million pounds, that is pounds sterling in 1920. The UK and Australia had 42% interest each and New Zealand 16%. So that's one thing and that uh, we all know how Nauru was exploited and, and abused and in a way still being abused in it in a different way by Australia but uh, one new scandal that I'd never heard before is that they'd also dug up a, a cemetery so some of the fertilizer that was being spread out over uh, New Zealand included crushed up bones of ancestors of these people this is, needless to say, extremely offensive to the Maori people who are 
uh, in full solidarity with all the uh, Pacific peoples. It's a completely different dimension to the objections that could be voiced about the uh, use of phosphate in in, um, fertilising New Zealand agriculture. And demonstrations continue against it. Oh, they do. And and there was one Sahari who actually uh, got fellow Saharawis in the occupied territory to be photographed holding the uh, placards saying a message to the uh, residents of the City of Christchurch and uh, the IMATU Union, the Saharawi people, thank you for your support and solidarity with us. And that was put out on a, I'm not sure whether it was a Twitter or something, uh, anyway, a, a, a site called Al Garat Media. But the, the fellow who is responsible for that site, Asabi Yahdi, he was uh, taken in for questioning by the Moroccan authorities, intimidated and maybe tortured a bit, I'm not sure. But he was uh, later released. He didn't. They didn't uh, keep him in prison, but they were straight on to it. So yes, it's very hard for them to express a view. And uh, if anyone ever tells you that Morocco is a democratic, <laughs> making good steps towards democracy, remember how they treat the Saharawis, who can't even say something in public if it offends the the powers that be. Finally, Kate, two good news stories, a doctor and a gardener. Yes, that's right. It's very, very nice in the face of all these horrible stories about human rights abuses and the uh, rigours of living in very high temperatures in the camps to hear that, that, you know, the Sahari spirit's amazing. So, yeah, I'll just mention first the garden. There's a a young Sahrawi who's decided to try and green the desert and he's practicing permaculture in the camps. He's made a garden surrounded by a wall. The goats got in one time and ruined everything, including the reticulated water, watering system that he'd created and ate all the vegetables. But he's got a way of keeping the goats out now and He's got vegetables, he's got other vegetables, you know, vines and things growing to shade the vegetables. And he's been building a chicken house out of these... Um, uh, I'm quite sure if he, he might have been using um, sand-filled bottles, uh, water bottles, to make a, a, a dome, because one of the Saharawis has worked out this way of filling the, you know, uh, those big... Water, water jar, uh, water bottles fill well, with um, sand, and then sort of putting them around, and they, and then they put the mud brick over that. But it, it makes a good structure and very good insulation. And then he got some more uh, bottles that he didn't fill with sand, so that they made a sort of window in the top of the dome and gave the chickens a bit of light. And and this was a chicken house, yes, for the for. for and he wanted to have ducks, but because of the lockdown, he hasn't, able, hasn't been able to get his ducks yet. I don't know how he's, how he's going to provide water for the ducks, but that's uh, so a, a chapter still to be to be written. 
But yes, congratulations to um, to this Saharawi gardener. Um, the other person who definitely needs a lot of congratulations is a doctor who has graduated as uh, in the top of all the uh, foreign students in the whole of Cuba, and he's been awarded something called the Golden Seal Award in Medicine. His name's Bashir Labat, and he also got another award for having carried out the best medical uh, research uh, investigation during the year. So uh, it, it's amazing. I just can imagine, though, what he's thinking now, because he probably wants to go on doing that research, and he will also be feeling an obligation to go back and help in the camps. So, yes, we'll wait and see what happens. But um, meanwhile, what an achievement. Hats off to uh, to Bashir Labat. Absolutely. Dr. Bashir. Right. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for your ongoing interest in Western Sahara. And thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association.